Blog Talk Radio. sometimes, and um, we talk about pretty difficult things, and we talk about some good times, and, and we just kind of generally hash out things that you're used to hearing in sound bites, and we have the privilege of being able to really talk about them, whether it's research or careers or uh, current events, and today our topic is first responders. Now, I'm not not sure if everybody knows what a first responder is. So first of all, we're going to talk about that. And uh, I think most people can kind of figure it out, but we're going to get a little bit more specific. And we have a woman who really should know. She should know about all of these things, and she does know. Her name is Dr. Lorelai Thompson. Lorelai, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Lorelai has a really, uh, uh, you know, I want to be Lorelai when I grow up. I'm probably 15 years older than she is, but I want to be her when I grow up. And uh, she had a long and illustrious career as a police officer right here in my my hometown of Seattle. And uh, after 30 years, she retired, decided that she wasn't done yet, and went back to school, got a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from Fielding University. And uh, she has been establishing a second career as uh, someone who works with first responders, and as well as others, right, Lorelai? Yes. Okay. So tell us about why, you know, tell us, first of all, tell us about your police career, what kinds of things did you do, and then why did you decide to not just sit in the rocking chair and uh, bake cookies in your retirement? <laughs> why did you decide to tackle a second career? Well, first, a tiny correction. I actually was with the Lacey Police Department, which is about 60 oh. miles south of Seattle. <clears throat> Sorry. That's okay. So I joined police work at Thurston County. It's the area I was in, and, and Lacey was one of the cities, and we didn't have female police officers. That just wasn't seen. There were some female reserves, so I thought I should do that, not paying attention to what that might mean. So I got hired by Lacey, and uh, we had an influx of uh People who came in from California who were chiefs or who were high-ranking officers down there became chiefs up here, so it brought a lot of new ideas in, so got fortunate there. I spent the first four years on patrol, loved it. I specialized in drunk driving enforcement. That was before MAD. That tells you how old I am, M-A-D-D. And then uh, I, <laughs> I got transferred in. I remember before MAD. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got transferred into detectives, and I just wanted to work general crimes, but I ended up specializing in sex crimes for 11 years, which... That's a tough assignment. Now, excuse me, we're, why? Because you were the woman? Is that the... Um, there was only two of us, and uh just sort of turned out that way, and I ended up going to classes, and I actually found that I did really well at it, so I stayed with it. So I did that 11 years. Worked a few homicides, which are always interesting. I got promoted and went back to the road graveyard for as a patrol lieutenant supervising a shift for... Quite a few years, and then uh, the last six years of my career, I ran a large drug unit, multi-agency. So, which you... was a blast, by the way. <laughs> oh, really? Why? Oh, that was a good time. Well, it's all action and adventure. If you're an officer who joined for action, adventure, and helping people, that's got it all. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. It, danger, though, right? Oh, a lot of danger, yeah. You have to... You know, watch that, but otherwise it's a lot of fun. 
So, yeah, well, I don't, it sounds to me like you're like a lot of people in difficult fields. You develop a black sense of humor about what you're doing. Absolutely. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. And cops are known for what we call graveyard humor. It's, it's, you have to, you see the worst of the worst that people do to each other. And you see it in horrible conditions. So you kind of have to make some jokes occasionally to sort of help your own psyche. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes it's hard for people outside of whatever field to understand, but it, it's crucial. You have to be able to find humor in everything. And, um, you know, it's just a survival tool, I think. So, okay, so you worked sex crimes, you worked drugs, you worked, you know, it sounds like a, a, a gamut. Um, did you choose to retire because you were ready for something else, or did you age out, or how how did your retirement come about? Well, you have to stay until you're 53 in this state, and I had started early at 22, so I knew I was going to hit a 30-year mark. That's a long time to see terrible things and all the experiences that come with that, and I thought I should do something that would be take some of my skills and transfer them into something similar. So I thought, well, psychology is close, so that, I went for the doctorate as the last few years I was working, and that transitioned very nicely. Okay. So let's start at the basics. What is a first responder? Those are the people that respond to crises and are there to assist, and that can be medics, fire personnel, ambulance, and police officers. So anybody who would go into high-risk situations or uh, situations where people are injured and do that primary care, stabilize the situation, and then make decisions about what needs to happen from there. Okay. We're kind of used to, you know, seeing first responders on TV and and different TV shows. Usually, uh, they're the ones that just kind of move out of the way when the, the, the big investigators come and that kind of thing. I don't think they usually get a whole lot of, of play in the dramas anyway. What about in real life? Well... They're the primary people who go into the scene when it's still hot, when things have just happened, when people are injured, or maybe the fight's still going on, depending on what kind of field you're in, or the fire is going. It's the people who respond to the immediate need, and are, it's I called it crisis earlier. It's basically usually there's a crisis or something's happened that needs some intervention. Okay. And that occurs a lot with domestic violence and um, that that kind of situation, is well, right? And and usually we tend to think of those situations as being particularly dangerous to the first responder. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah, if we're talking about police, absolutely. You have domestic violence. You have all sorts of different disturbances, bar fights, uh, people fighting in the streets. You have crimes that have just been committed in the officer response to try to find the suspect who may be fleeing. You might have large incidents at schools or businesses, just about anything that's like in the moment happening now and needs people specially trained to deal with it. Okay. Um, what kind of specialty training do do these first responders get? What does it involve? I, I guess what I'm asking is, is, does it involve a component of self-protection for them, uh, of, of how they deal with, with what they're going to be seeing? Well, if you're talking about police officers, they are uh, there's a mandatory academy where you get all the skills of self-defense and knowing the law and how to interact with people, how to handle different situations. And I believe our academy does give some self-care there's some help training in mental health um, 
working with the mentally ill, but also there's a segment on uh, t- a little bit of self-care right before they get out that do the things that could happen for you. But it, uh, as, as far as I know, it hasn't expanded to probably where it might be a little bit more helpful. I think they're working on that, however. Okay, that's good to know. Um, so, okay, Re- first responder comes to a scene, whether it's a medic or a police officer. Um, what? And I suppose military has first. We we should include military and first responders as well, right? Yes and no. They have a different kind of function. Obviously, they're going to walk into things that are hot and immediate, but it's a diff- a little bit different. Okay, all right. So let's restrict it to civilian um, uh, first responders. So um, what are the skills that a first responder needs? It sounds like they need to know how to diffuse a situation. What Absolutely. Else you, you, well, the first thing is it's almost a triage. You walk in, and as you're approaching the scene, you have to determine, okay, are there threats here? How do I stay safe or my partner stay safe? How do we approach this and handle this quickly and efficiently with the least amount of danger to everybody involved? Do we need more uh, resources, like more people? And then as you go through the situation, you're constantly assessing for safety and danger and what needs to be done. Is there medical attention we have to call? Um, Is there a fleeing suspect that's a danger to somebody? So it's an ongoing process where you come into particularly the hotter calls. What needs to be done? What needs to be secured? Is there evidence laying around that you got to watch out for and protect that? So it's like a million things going on at once if you have a big scene or something really volatile going on. Are first responders, I, I, I know that there's always the ideal situation and then there's real life, but it sounds like these people have to be selected for a, a real specific kind, set of skills and, and behaviors. Is that the case? Yes. Actually, Washington state law now has um, a specific law that says that officers who are going to, people who want to be candidates for police officers have to pass both a psychological test, a background, and a polygraph to ensure that you're a good candidate. And the skills that make a good officer, there's some variance in there about what kinds of things work, but you have to weed out people who are going to be a problem. Okay. So what kinds of characteristics or skills are useful um, and, and good, if you will, for a first responder? Well, right off the bat, people skills. You have to be able to talk to people and all kinds of people. You have to be able to assess what their needs are and have them talk to you, have them relate to you, and in some cases have them understand that they have to do what you say so that they you know, don't get in trouble or whatever. You need to be creative. You should be able to work individually and make your own decisions because many departments don't have much backup. And you also need to be able to work in a team or a group because some events require lots of people or lots of officers that, to take care of it. So you have to have both of those skills. And, of course, the usual, you know, be able to defend yourself, learn self-defense skills, and make good decisions. So, in other words, all of the executive skills that you need to be president of the United States or something? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, how do we find people, to, enough people to do this with all of those skills? I mean, I, you know, I mean, you got to about number three, and I'm thinking, well, I wouldn't qualify. You know, I'm... <laughs> How 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 do we find people with all of those that array of of skills in order to do this in every community, all the time? 
it is difficult at times that I I recall looking backwards that there were a couple of periods of times where we could not find good candidates. There were people who were stepping up, but they were not appropriate for the job. And then there's other times where there's lots of folks coming in who really do have the right skills, and then you have a nice selection. So you're hoping to uh, to grab those folks up. So it, it comes okay. and goes. But um, people who like action and adventure, who like to work on their own, who are bright, those kinds of things, you know, it's a good career for that. Yeah. So, okay, so we've got people with real specific skill sets, and we've got presumably really sound training for them on how to handle their jobs. So why do we need psychologists to specialize in first responders? It sounds like we've just got a real big, real great handle on it. Well, if I could reflect back on an earlier comment I made, you see the worst that people do to each other. And mm-hmm. some of that is just horrific. Consider that 11 years I worked in child abuse. I saw unfathomable things done to children, and uh, people do horrible things to each other as adults. You talked about domestic violence. And so you as an officer walk in and you see those things, or you hear those stories day after day after day, and then let's not forget the officers are regularly disliked or people want to escape when you're trying to arrest them. So there's physical fights and assaults on you. In addition, sometimes people are severely mentally ill or they are um, high on different substances and they're out of their mind and you have to protect the public. So you're face-to-face with somebody who's very difficult to deal with and may be highly combative and not feel pain while you're you know, trying to wrestle them to the ground. So there's a lot of really disturbing things that happen to us. Wow. That, that takes its toll over time. Yes, it does, and some incidents are are more traumatic to some officers than others. And, and of course, if you pile those on top of each other, you have an officer who experiences a significant number of those over and over, that tends to compile and make it worse. Okay. So are we – you know what, I'm negligent here. We have a phone number and we have a chat room, and uh, we'd love for you to call our – uh, show and, and share your comments or maybe ask your questions. I think a lot of us, uh, not not everyone, of course, but a lot of us have been in situations where we dealt with a first responder and, uh, at, you know, on the other side of, of the fence here from what they were doing. And, uh, I, you know, it's kind of fascinating for me. I have had one situation in my life where I dealt with, uh, I was I was on the receiving end of a first responder, and uh, actually two because I had a big car wreck too. And uh, it's kind of fun for me to learn, you know, this. Uh, I'm sure that I'm not the only one that never really thought a whole lot about first responders in the long term. So if you have a story or a question and you want to join our conversation, ask Lorelai a question, please do. You can go to the chat room. That is open, and you can type in a question, or you can just give us a phone call, 646 378 Zero four three zero. That's six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. So okay, so we've got first responders out there all over every community, and they're doing their jobs well, and they have some pretty rugged conditions under which they they function. 
um, what happens? Do they just la 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 go through life, or uh, do are we looking at uh, reactions? Are we looking at depression? Are we looking at breakdown? What are we looking at for first responders? Well, one of the problems is the culture of law enforcement, at least the years I was in, was that you suck it up and you don't talk about distress. And unfortunately, you can't keep stuffing that in your gut. So without dealing with it in a healthy way, not knowing how to deal with it in a healthy way, you do see some percentage of law enforcement officers are going to find other ways to take care of that pain. And that could be anything from alcohol to anger to... uh, gambling, you know, those sorts of things that any other person who's traumatized might do. Of course, we don't want to see that in first responders, but those kinds of things can come out. And there's that uh, we don't want to appear weak and or help or we always want to be strong. And so that culture reinforces not talking about it, which is really bad. And there's a huge movement now to take care of this. So that's really nice to know. Okay, when you say take care of this, how do you mean? There are organizations popping up all over there that are now trying to reach other police officers. There's websites started by police officers to talk about PTSD and dealing with stress and support each other during rough times. And there are police psychologists that specifically work with this type of um, all officer problem, which can be more than just it might not be PTSD. It could be marriage problems because it's a tough career. It could be you know uh, depression from just seeing horrible stuff. It could be all of that. So those are some of the things that I work with. Okay. So why did you decide to to work in this field? Well, originally was looking at forensic psychology, which I do. But right after I retired, I started getting phone calls from police officers from the local area or who had heard of me and knew that I'd retired and wanting treatment or wanting treatment for their officers, which I thought, I, you know, I didn't advertise that. So I sort of morphed into it, and I was uh, sort of surprised at how much there was out there. I knew it was there. So that's been a big part of my practice, and I did a series of lectures to different agencies trying to promote health, and here's what goes on, and here's what you might be experiencing if you're having these difficulties, and we can help that feel better. So... You know, I hope to be part of the process of helping newer officers not go through some of the stuff that people okay. have experienced and take care of themselves better. Okay. Can you give us any examples of some of the situations um, that officers have, have encountered that where they've come to you for help? Well, the big ones are always the fight for life, we call it, where an officer is usually by themselves having to combat somebody who, I'll tell you most of the time, they're extremely high on some narcotic or they're uh, drunk and they're big and they don't feel pain, and the officer is literally fighting for his life and trying to stay alive until somebody can come help him. That's a near-death experience, which fits PTSD. The other is, of course, being involved in a shooting, whether it's having to shoot somebody or being shot yourself and surviving. So those are the two biggies, followed up by um, people who are exposed to having to deal with the child porn issues. The Internet, of course, has been an explosion for the pedophiles, and somebody's got to go hunt these individuals down, so they're having to look at horrible pictures over and over of children being abused. So they're also a high rate of PTSD with those individuals. So is there a, a burnout rate? I mean, when when we're talking the, the pitfalls of being a first responder, 
Um, you know, we always talk about career burnout. Is is that a, a word that you would use for for some of these folks? That word actually has been used forever, as far as I I've known. I heard it when I came into law enforcement, and you look at the older officers who didn't really want to go out sometimes and. Get, be the first one on the call or go out and do really high intense police work and we would look at them as burnouts because we just felt like they've been around too long but I look back now and I know what some of those people have been through and went oh no this is PTSD and these these guys are just trying to stay alive mentally and physically so I feel bad that we didn't notice this long time ago that we we just accused them of not being good cops when in fact they were just horribly traumatized so how uh, is it different for a first responder than any other kind of, of crisis that people experience? Uh, well, the, the I think a lot of us who are in the field, we talk, and I, a lot of us feel like police PTSD is a lot like military. We both run into the fire, run into the bullets. You know, we're there to go help. So you're actually going towards the trauma. Whereas civilian PTSD is usually accidental, like in a horrible car accident, or inflicted by someone and you're helpless, and you know if you could get away, you would, like child abuse, sexual mm-hmm. assault, that type of thing. So it does seem like there's some differences in how that sort of manifests. It's PTSD, but there's a difference in the individual that has it. Hmm. So what can you do to help a first responder? Me personally, or are you talking about everybody? Mm-hmm. Or your field, yeah. Okay. Generally, I think we're all pretty much right off the bat, we want to get them in here as soon as we can because it becomes chronic over time and it's harder to treat. But my goal always, as soon as they come in the door, is I don't let them leave here without some ways to reduce stress and anxiety some relaxation techniques and visualization and breathing, all those things that can kind of help them relax in the moment if they're having an anger response or they're highly anxious or panic attacks. So those kinds of things that can give them a little bit of control back. And then as we move on, there's different techniques that are used depending on the individual, but you can do some work with cognitive restructuring where you talk about the events that happened and and see them in a different way, how they were successful with them and how the outcome was good. Because people in PTSD, no matter what it is, tend to relive situations and they go over and over and over in their head, how could I have done this different? What if this had happened? What if that had happened? And it takes them down really dark roads of depression and anger. So we try to Mm -hmm. break that pattern by re-looking at the event. And then lots of people respond well to exposure therapy where you talk about the incident enough and teach them how to breathe during it and relax so that the incident no longer has the emotional impact it used to have when they remember it. So those are all good techniques that seem to work and have uh, lots of research behind them that show that they do work. Yeah. You know, as a member of the public, we're awfully hard on our first responders, aren't we? We our expectations are extremely high. Sometimes uh I think that everybody assumes, you know, because of things that are in the headlines or whatever or, you know, police officers that do horrible things or whatever. I I think most of us just kind of assume we have a very very high standard for what these human beings are supposed to do. Well, I think they should have high standards for uh, expectations for behavior 
and doing their job, but there's also an expectation that you're somewhat of a robot. You can solve every problem. You don't have feelings, and that's not true. Well, not only that, but it seems like we expect um, we expect perfection. I mean, we we don't have a sense, I suspect, of what it's like to try and be under a high-pressure situation where lives are at stake and to have to decide what what actions to be taking and decide wrong. You know, I, I, I think that once a decision is made, all of us, you know, bystanders and, you know, news readers and everything can go, well, why did he do that? Why did she not do this? Why did, you know, it's so easy to second guess. And I think that we, um, I don't know, I mean, it, it occurs to me sometimes when I read the headlines, I think, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to... I'm sure glad I'm not the one who had to decide in that scenario, you know, situation. Or, you know, I mean, the classic one is, you know, the cell phone that looks like a gun or something, and there's a shot fired, and, you know, and and I, I'm not, sh- I'm, I don't know how I would uh, react to some of those things and how I would handle those things, and um, it, it just always strikes me as, you know, we just have really, really high expectations and and assumptions of of what should be done. Um, am I just a wussy? <laughs> no, actually, you're quite right. And I look at all that's going on now. We actually had the same kind of thing at a lesser level with the Rodney King incident years ago when I was working. And some aspects of police work uh, people don't understand, and, and some decisions have to be made in just very little time. And others you look at, and you, I do the same thing. I go, wow, what was he thinking? I hope there's another reason here. A lot of departments, ours included, did um, what was called a citizen academy where citizens can come in, learn about police work, and then they get to go usually to a, a simulator where they have to make those decisions with a gun. And, you know, obviously it's shooting blanks. But they have those kinds of scenarios and go through that and make those decisions. And if you don't make them right, you either kill a civilian or you uh, maybe killed yourself in those scenarios. So it really does, people always express when they go through those, that how different it is to have to make that decision in real time versus yeah. seeing it on TV. We read a lot about um, um, people's prejudices. Uh, we all have our prejudices, and we read a lot about prejudices uh, for police officers, for example, and how that plays out. And uh, do do police do do our personal prejudices? I, I, I don't know how to phrase this. Are are is training sufficient? to overcome our personal prejudices when we make decisions in a professional capacity, do you think? Well, here's I, I sort of thought this question might come up. So what uh, is generally accepted is that uh, police departments who have good training, good ongoing training, high expectations of their officers, and good supervision usually have a good police force. And Unfortunately, sometimes when that breaks down, when the supervision isn't good, when officers aren't held accountable, when expectations aren't clear, and when officers aren't supported in their job by their admin, then that breaks down and then you see problems. So a lot of people who deal with that's more sociological, but when you see a lot of problems, it's often because there is not a good line of supervision and good expectations and reinforcement of that. So training and supervision are the biggies for success 
and making sure that doesn't happen. Everybody's got something. Everybody's of got, course. you know, but you can manage that as an officer because you know that, okay, maybe I don't agree with this particular thing, but this is the way it has to be, and, you know, I get that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, we all have our things, and we let our rational minds over, you know, handle that a lot. Yes. I think. Um, I, I know. I always tell the story of how I, I, my mother was um, uh, Western Canadian, and uh, as you may know, in Canada, especially forty or fifty years ago, um, big, big controversy between the French East part of Canada wanting to secede and, you know, speak their own language, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it was a big deal, and that hit right when she was a young woman. And so I grew up in Ohio, in northern Ohio, and I was very much conditioned to be prejudiced against the French. I I mean, it was the dirty French. They could speak English if they wanted to. I've never met another person who was... (laughs) groomed to think French people were were terrible, you know. But I was. And it's kind of laughable because of course I mean, you know, really. Um but but in fact I was groomed to think of the French you know, in that way. And uh yet as as I was growing up and I realized, well, this is kind of silly, you know <laughs> you know, my my intellectual capacities were able to override, you know, that, that conditioning uh for that prejudice. But nevertheless it was a really good experience for me because I remember being a young woman in a museum and looking at the the piece of art on the wall and next to me um uh, was a couple and they started to talk and they were talking in French and my first thought was they could speak English if they wanted to. <laughs> and, then, and then I thought, oh my God, my mother is in my head. You know, <laughs> I don't. You know, I, I, it's a. It was a really good example to me of how these prejudices get carried through. You know, yep. despite it can logic. be a product of that of our yes, childhood exactly. and and our own neighborhoods and that type of thing. Exactly. Uh, div- exactly. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I mean, it, because it's kind of a ridiculous, you know, and unusual prejudice, you know, I, I do use it sometimes as an example because, you know, I was able to intellectually go, well, this is just silly, you know, um, and 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 therefore, you know, kind of counteract that, that conditioning that I had as a child. So I understand how our, we can have these prejudices and yet be able to intellectually, uh, you know, and, and socially put them in check, you know, and, and put them in their, their appropriate uh, receptacle, if you will. Um, but what happens if what happens if there is not good training for well, a first responder? if there's not good training and not good supervision, then officers are left to their own devices. And, you know, it, depending on what's going on in that community, it might not be a problem. But if it's got tensions or other issues, it could be a problem. Departments usually strive for diversity and to represent their community. So you you know you try to have officers that reflect everybody there. Yeah, yeah. That's the best um, way. And then again, supervision. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's take a caller. We have uh, a couple of folks who've called in here. Um, caller, are you there? Caller, are you there? I'm I'm 
They're all poor like Obama. Okay, I don't know what that is, but we're going to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> I don't know whether that was technical or somebody's idea of a good time. I don't know. Caller, are you there? Hello, are you there? Hello, are you there? Yes. Do you Hello? hear us? Are you right. calling uh, three women three ways? Do you have a comment? Uh, yeah, I'd just like to comment on all those stupid niggers who've been. Okay, we're going to take that away. Wow. Um, clearly, you know, I have to tell you, I'm there, so sorry, Lorelai. I've been doing this show for three years, and that's the first time I've ever gotten a call like that. Usually the people who listen are uh, quite interested in our topic, so my apologies to you, Lorelai, and my apologies oh. to the, the listeners. And... Um, Hopefully, uh, okay, we got another one coming in, and I'm a little reticent to even take it. Um, I think we're going to just, just pass on that. If this caller holds for a long time, uh, then I might assume that they're serious. Otherwise, we're just going to let the callers go. Um, sorry about that, because there could be some real legitimate questions there. We well, do it have... is a, a tough topic, so I was ready for it. Were you? That. Well, why <laughs> yeah. didn't you prepare me? <laughs> I wasn't I've been ready for it. I've been community forums. I... <laughs> Matter of fact, I'm quite traumatized. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, you know it's it's interesting to um, to have these conversations. I think trying to see sometimes we see people as their jobs and we don't see them as fellow human beings. Absolutely. Does that mean? Makes that, sense. That's absolutely what happens with police. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I mean, and uh, I made the comment about uh, you know being seen as robots and able to handle every, handle everything. That's yeah. an expectation. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know what? Maybe some of these calls are from French people taking me to task for my <laughs> previous. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize to all French people. I have done my best to overcome that particular prejudice. And I would like to say some of my best friends are French, but actually I really don't know that many French people, so I can't even say that. You know, so my, well, on my that dirty topic, little... I thought Seattle did a great job of lighting up the red, white, and blue after the incident in France when I drove through there a couple weekends ago. Oh, that yeah. was That was beautiful. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, funny, I think, how how you, you look through history and, uh, you know, the French were our great buddies during the Revolution, and then we went through a period where we didn't like them, and then we liked them, yep. and then, you know, I mean, these things are always <laughs> shifting, you know, but Politics. not for my mother, God rest her soul. <laughs> she was very firm in her particular beliefs, you know, uh, dear. Well, um, I, I, you know, it's it's. We're just getting a lot of phone calls here, and, and I'm just really reluctant to try them out. So my apologies to all of you if you have some legitimate questions. Um, but Maybe I'm they a little... could uh, email you, and that might be easier. Yeah, go to the chat to... room. That would be great. Uh, go to the chat room. And as a matter of fact, there is a question there. How does one get a job as a first responder? Depends on what you want to do. If you want to be police, and this is one of the good things that that has happened, is they're now asking police officers, it's not necessarily required, but a lot of departments are, that you have some education before you come in so that you've seen the world a bit. Take Get an AA, general studies kind of, or BA, and, and meet other people, do other things, learn, read, so that helps. So have that on your resume. Be in decent physical shape. Be one who's good with people. Um, that kind of thing. If you're going to fire, 
and medic, you should be interested in the medical field and be doing some training in that before you're able to be hired. Okay. When we talk about um, fire and and medic and all that kind of stuff, clearly they have their own um, specialties. But mm-hmm. is training somewhat similar for these folks? I don't know what they do for self-care. I do know that a lot of the uh, fire departments and uh, do a good job of debriefing critical incidents. And remember that fire also tends to work in a team, which uh, police officers don't as much. So there's a little bit more, um, I'm hoping, social support there for each other. Yeah. Um, can you Let's talk a little bit about your personal experience with uh, the situations and the problems that you help first responders with. We talk clearly about PTSD, and that is a huge issue for for many things, um, uh, for many for for many people in many situations. But I think sometimes people think that PTSD only occurs uh, for like a one shot trauma, a Columbine, for example. Um, but in fact, trauma that's inflicted repeatedly over and over and over creates a different kind of PTSD, does it not? And it's a yes. kind of a tougher, tougher PTSD. It's a, harder to treat, and that's um, this is again where you kind of see the military stuff being similar to us because the military will go into fight after fight after fight, see horrible stuff, explosions. We go into traumatic events, but it has to be the right ones to cause that pile up. So it's. Um, when you're treating it, the sooner you can get to it, the better. Usually most people recover from any trauma within 30 days. That's usually the the benchmark. And if it continues beyond that, generally there's things you can teach them and help them kind of resolve that and take care of it. When it's untreated and it goes on and people bury it and try to deal with it other ways, and then you pile some more on top, and then it goes on top of that. Really hard to get rid of that because it becomes uh, such a change for them in how they see the world, and they're angry and they're anxious. And usually PTSD that's kind of chronic has a depressive component to it too, which could make people suicidal and uh, change how they live their life, breaks up families. So a lot of side consequences that come from it that make things worse. And then the job starts to be irritating or they maybe try to avoid things. They start to get in fights with supervisors or coworkers. They isolate, which is really a problem because there's no social support at that point. So you see this um, kind of pathway they go down and leads to just significant problems in their life and for the people around them. Yeah. So do you get called in or do people come to you voluntarily? It works in a number of different ways. Um, I don't advertise, but word of mouth is out there. So a lot of departments, when they have a traumatic incident, will offer their officers um, a session or two with somebody to debrief. And so I'm usually on, or often on a list where they can come to me if they want to. And uh, other times I get calls from officers who've just had enough and it's taken them some time, but they feel like now they're ready to get some treatment. So, you know, we'll get them in and get them started. And some people, we always try to get them back to work or keep them at work if we can because that's really important for their well-being if they can work. But now and then you get some people in who just have had enough and you can't send them back to work. So you try to help 
them work towards having a meaningful life the best that they can with all these symptoms. Yeah. What's the prognosis if a first responder comes to you, um, has been in the field for 10 years, um, and and they have pretty severe PTSD? What's the prognosis for that person? Are they looking at a time for a career change, or are, what, what's, what are they looking for? Well, a lot of times they know what they want. They want to get better, and they're and the trauma isn't so um, long term, or they haven't had so many that it's overwhelming them. But if they come in and they've had a lot of trauma, and their life is pretty much in shambles, and they've got an addiction, and all of that's going on, maybe they're suicidal. Little less likely that you're going to get them back to work, but. I always try to give them that hope, if that's what they want, that we can try that. I, I don't tell anybody they can't go back, because if that's the job they love and want to go back, we try to work towards that. But sometimes you can reach a point where you know they can't, and then it's how do we how do we help you have a good life beyond police work. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell us anything specific about um, maybe a situation uh, or two that you've encountered in working with a first responder uh, where it was, uh, you know, whatever he or she experienced, they were able to work through it and how? Well, let's see. I've worked with um, a number of officers who've had the fight for life, which where they were attacked and alone and trying to fight for the, the ability to, you know, to stay alive for somebody to come help them. And that's really traumatic to go through that. By the way, that's just overwhelming. All you can think about is, am I going to make it? So what you have to do with that is you really have to rework that event and show them how successful they were and teach them how to combat some of the anxiety and and the disturbing thoughts that come from that. And if it's impacting their job, that they're avoiding some things, how do we get them to see that they can go back and do those again? How do we build that confidence back? So a lot of that is the cognitive restructuring I talked about, seeing the thing differently, exposure therapy, reducing the impact of talking about it. And if they are able to go back to the scene where it happened and take that scene back by you know, going there, having the power to say, okay, I'm not going to let this scene define me, I'm not going to let this event define me, and I can do this. So those kinds of techniques help. How long does that take? I mean, are we talking years, months, weeks? Depends on how bad they are. If they come in initially, you're going to have probably intense treatment for six to nine months and then some aftercare with lesser lesser sessions, you know, more time in between. The really chronic ones, you're looking at dinner, I think, acceptable around the community of those who treat first responders is that it's going to be about three years, one year of really intensive treatment every week, sometimes twice if they're suicidal. And then um, you start to maybe go every other week the second year and have them try to um, manage some of their symptoms without so much support from you. And then that last year is more check-ins. But it can be up to three years for the bad stuff. Yeah. What is in the future for dealing with first responders. Are we doing research? Are we looking at this? Are we saying, well, yeah, we've got a handle on it. This is all we need to do. Um, 
are, are we looking at uh, ways to help mitigate PTSD when these events first occur? What are we looking at for the future for first responders? Well, there's a lot more out there now. You see a number of websites that are really helpful. Again, um, the Code 9 is one. There's one for the RCMP has an excellent website for PTSD. There's a number of officer support types ones popping up. So those are nice, and if we could get that word out, that people can go there and be anonymous and get information, that's helpful. There are two different um, full treatment centers that will take first responders and I think their families for the real severe stuff and help them sort of reintegrate and be healthy again. And uh, we're seeing departments be more aware of this, that they need to step in and provide services anonymously for officers who need help and not make it so shameful feeling or a sign of weakness. So we're seeing some progress here, but um, I think that there's a really a long ways to go because okay. I do see people. I do see departments trying to help people, but then on the other side, they're not as they then they tend to watch them more closely when they come back, which makes them feel like they're under a microscope when you know they're doing okay. Give them a chance to recover here. Sure. Sure. Um, And so uh, that was my next question about the long-term repercussions. I mean, say somebody goes through some some sort of treatment or some sort of therapy, they feel like they're ready to handle things again, you give them the all-clear, and then what? Um, are, are they well, likely first, to many stay working while they're treated. Many many are able to work. It's just trying okay. to reduce the symptoms. So that's a good thing. And if we can keep them working, really, that's a good thing. Or if you can send them back fairly quickly, that's the best. If they're gone a long time, then that's where the trouble comes in. And so my recommendations are always let's start out with some light duty, doing things that don't put them in direct line of fire, making heavy decisions and facing combative people right away. There's other divisions in most places where they can do some work in there, whether it's detectives or crime prevention or whatever those kinds of things might be that give them meaningful work to do, but don't put them right back in the scene. And then you integrate them back in. Is there, and I would imagine this depends on the the community or the, the is there a, a feeling of macho that if you can't handle this, there's something wrong with you? Yep. We're trying, I, I see that lessening, but it certainly was there when I came in, and I went in in 1981. So back in that day, you did not show weakness at all. That was not allowed. So that seems to be easing up a bit, that it isn't weakness. It's. I always tell people, okay, you break your leg, you got to get it in a cast, or you're going to walk crooked and you're going to be hurting and you might get other things so think about ptsd as sort of a physical injury that if you don't get it treated it might kind of heal some of itself but you might always have these twinges and it could come if you break it again it's going to be worse yeah so start thinking about it as a physical ailment instead of psychological well, and in fact, I mean, some of the brain scans that I've seen of people with PTSD and people without, I mean, there's hugely distinctive physical changes to the brain. So well, it's a massive adrenaline you, dump into your brain is what's happened, and so it does alter your brain. Yeah. So, I mean, those changes, in fact, are physical changes. Um, Absolutely. That, you know, the, so I, I think, you know, this idea that somehow or other we can 
kind of uh, group PTSD as some sort of only psychological. I mean, the research is clearly showing that, no, it in fact is, you know, it creates physical changes. So it may not be a broken bone, but it's definitely physical changes to your body. Um, and and those can be pretty devastating, no matter who you are. Yep. Um, but anyway, well, what's in your future? What do you hope to do for the rest of your career? Well, or I love treating this population cancer? because it's a chance to give back to my brothers and sisters that I worked with so closely. So I I really like working with them. So I want to continue doing that and. I would like I have some different research projects in my brain that I'd like to do in this area if I, you know if you can get sponsorship or someone to like oversee that and help you out. I just think there's a lot to be done here with first responders and so that's we sort of like so we're focusing on them. Yes. We, we expect do. so much from first responders whether it's a wreck on the freeway um or uh, you know or a, a call to a domestic violence situation our expectations are extremely high I think as the public but I'm not sure we ever really think about it. And I would agree with that statement. What does that um, mean to the person doing both those things often in the same day? Yeah, yeah. And we don't even think about it. Um, but, of course, there are wonderful, you know, people doing wonderful work all the time that we don't even think about. So I, I suppose that, you know, that's just kind of par for the course in a lot of our world today. But oh, yeah. what if I worked in, well, I, I want to tie this in a little bit with domestic violence, because, of course, that's my area of, uh, of particular interest. Um, when an officer goes to domestic violence, we in the, in the public have always been conditioned to believe that domestic violence situations are much more dangerous than other situations for first responders. Is that always the case, or is that a fair statement, or is that uh, an exaggeration? I think they are really dangerous, and uh, the other one is traffic stops because you never know who you're stopping. But with uh, domestic violence, you have people who are upset and angry. Uh, it's a home, so there are weapons you can't know about. You don't know their criminal backgrounds often the times. Um, usually you know if you've been there a few times, but those can go sideways really fast. So they're they're very dangerous, and you're having to use your safety skills, but you also have to use a lot of verbal skills to calm people down and get information. And the law is real specific about certain things you have to know before you can make an arrest, but you're supposed to make an arrest. So there's a lot of uh, requirements in those uh, in those particular scenes. Yeah, yeah. Um, has it improved? Over the last, you know, over the course of your career, the dealing well, with well, when I violence. started, there were no DV laws, so you would go to places, and unless the victim, usually the woman, would press charges, you had to leave. You'd, you'd calm it down and try to get one of them to leave, and then you would go, and you'd end up going back three, four times. As the laws evolved, it's really, I think, it's helped because it's had to be fleshed out here and there because there were different things that came up. But it's given officers the ability to go in and assess the situation and then take somebody out who needs to go to jail and maybe make it safe for a family or, you know, the victim or an opportunity for them to get out if they need to. So I think it's been really helpful in making the job easier and and in protecting people. But they are tough calls to go to. Mm-hmm. Because of the and volatility. They're fre- and they're frequent. They're high volume. Um, but because of the volatility is why it's particularly well. Dangerous. There's volatility. Sometimes there's drinking or other drug use. 
there can be all sorts of some people are like I said have criminal backgrounds and they have a, a reason not to go back to jail, go to jail. So you never know. And then you still do get people who change on you. So you're taking one person to jail and the other person gets upset by it. So that can escalate as well. You have relatives who don't like you intervening. So it really can be very dangerous. But I think the law is great in that it has really helped give law enforcement tools to intervene in these situations and, and try to at least make it safe so some intervention from other agencies can happen. Yeah. Um, I was at a conference a couple years ago with a police officer um, uh, from, gosh, where was he from? Chicago, I think. And he was a long-term police officer, and he said that um, he saw that women were able to defuse a DV situation much faster than a man. And that's uh, uh, been known for a long time. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that's been common knowledge for a long time. Women have tended to do. Now, I think we're going to see that change as, you know, what our expectations of officers change. We hire different people who have better social skills. But if you – women tend to do better because um, oftentimes when you get a male offender – He's already angry, and it's his home. And so then you've got this kind of, you're challenging me as a male, whereas they're less likely to do that for with a female they don't know. It just seems really, to be and the I case. Would have thought, I would have thought that uh, there would be, you know, like a lack of respect for a female in that you scenario. You think so, but, boy, I, I found that I did really well at those. Huh. And I think that that's always been kind of the... This, uh, I don't know if it's been studied or not, but it certainly seems to be um, the belief amongst a lot of people who, you know, talk about and train about DVs that we've seen it work really well with the women. Hmm. Well, that's now there's good. some situations that nobody's going to win, but and in general, women seem to do really well at those. Hmm. Okay. Um, what about? Uh, we talked about first responders um, and, you know, what they see. But what about um, when they lose uh, a colleague? Is that a different kind of thing? Is that a more, if you will, normal kind of uh, loss and, and uh, uh, trauma to deal with? Or is that also something that adds to uh, the the unusual um, um, burdens for a first responder? It's very traumatic. Uh, we obviously, we had the Lakewood 4 down here, which is the anniversary was a couple of days ago of that, the four officers that were murdered down in Lakewood. And a lot of us from other agencies knew them, or um, the woman had worked at my agency, so I knew her well. So, you know, obviously that's traumatic for everybody involved in it. But if you go across police officers, we all understand we all do kind of the same sort of work. So that's sort of that unspoken connection. And so it does hit us really hard when an officer is murdered because that could happen to us. We're doing that same kind of work. Oftentimes it's unexpected. It's a situation we have been in ourselves a million times, like domestic violence or serving a warrant. So it has a lot of impact on an officer, Any all officers, I would assume. Yeah, so that is one more thing that, that they need to, uh, well, you know, everybody has to pay attention to that, you know, and, and how it affects them, but uh, that's just one more thing for police officers and first responders. Um, if you ruled the world, 
how would you handle first responders and their their care? Well, I think when you sort of alluded to it earlier, there'd be a lot of training as they were going through their initial training, ongoing about you know exposure to things that could happen and how to take care of yourself. And then there would be each agency would have representatives from mental health and that would be part of taking care of people. They wouldn't be just here or there or somebody you call if something happens, but they would actually be somehow connected so that people were familiar with them. An officer knew that person. The big cities have this, like L.A. and I'm trying to think where else, but some of them have actual police psychologists, and they ride with the officers, so the officers get used to them, so it's okay to go talk to them. So we would handle it that way. And if somebody was having difficulty, we would address it right away and not make it shaming, but make it let's help you, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Did I miss anything in my questions that, that we should know about first responders and what they deal with? I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> I, I don't need my therapy today, okay? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, okay. Well, I just wanted to make sure, because I don't think I've ever, to be quite honest with you, I don't think I've ever actually seen a show or a, a, a conversation where the focus was just on first responders and what they do um, and how they deal with it. So I want to make sure I cover it as much as possible. I'm trying to think. I know I've seen a couple of things that did a good job, um, whether you like the topic or not. American Sniper did a good job of talking about showing PTSD, how he went through um, when he did all the things he did and he came back home, how he would be staring off in the distance watching the TV, TV's not on, how he would react, overreact to things. Those kinds of things are what PTSD PTSD is about for the first responder in the military. It's that hypervigilance about safety and not wanting to be around people and reacting to noise, all those things. So they did a good job of that part of it. Um, Every now and then I see somebody uh, in a movie that references a little bit here or there, and I pick up on it, and I don't know if other people do, but it's kind of nice to see that they're sort of addressing that here and there. Yeah. Well, I really, really appreciate your work, Lorelai, not only your police work, but your psychology work that you're doing right now. And I think that it's definitely an area uh, where we need more people looking at this. Um, And I think that as, you know, civilians, if you will, we also need to be paying some attention to the first responders and what they are doing and try and put ourselves in their places a little bit and see how easily, um, you know, we might make an error or we might be traumatized by something that we expect these folks to do on a daily basis, day in, day out, and just keep doing it because it's their job. So I appreciate your being on the show, Lorelai. I appreciate what you're doing and what you've done, and I hope you'll come back again sometime and talk with us. I appreciate you giving this topic some consideration. This is great to to have it out there, and so thank you for your good work. Well, thank you. Um, I'm getting all sorts of kudos today. That's making up for the phone, <laughs> the nasty phone call. <laughs> we'll just have a mutual admiration society. There you go. Well, thank you once again uh, for listening to Three Women, Three Ways. I always end our show with a quote, and today I have a quote from Joe Lieberman. 
Joe Lieberman said every day, first responders put their own lives on the line to ensure our safety. The least we can do is make sure they have the tools to protect and serve their communities. And I would add not only the tools, but the resources like Lorelei for dealing with what they have to deal with. So thank you once again for joining us with Three Women Three Ways. I learned a lot about first responders. I hope you did. And next week we're going to have another topic dealing. I'm trying to line up something that I think is going to be kind of exciting. So uh, give us a chance next week. Join us again for Three Women Three Ways. <laughs>